Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Gileadi, Ph.D. 14. The Davidic Covenant in Action Have Latter-day Saints observed how God's covenants operate in the Book of Mormon and Book of Isaiah? Why is the Davidic Covenant so important? Welcome to podcast number 14, The Davidic Covenant in Action. We're going to start with a definition of kingship here that Jacob gives of his brother Nephi, even though Nephi was not a political king. He nevertheless fulfilled the function of king under the terms of the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with King David and his heirs. Nephi performs the functions of a king, 2 Nephi chapter 6, verse 2. Jacob, I, Jacob, having been called of God and ordained after the manner of his holy order, that's the holy order of the priesthood, priesthood of Melchizedek, and having been consecrated by my brother Nephi, unto whom ye look as a king or protector, and on whom ye depend for safety. There we have clearly what the function of a king is, according to the Book of Mormon, and according to Isaiah's definition of what a king and queen is too. Kings and queens of the Gentiles do the same thing. Unto whom you look as a king or protector. So a king is a protector. And if he's not functioning as a protector, then he's not a king, right? On whom you depend for safety. Why? Why will the house of Israel, the Jews, the ten lost tribes, and the Lamanites of the end time, why will they need saviors to save them after the pattern of ancient kings and queens under the terms of the Davidic covenant? Well, because they're newly coming into God's covenant, and they themselves are not yet on a higher spiritual level enough to merit God's protection of them under the terms of any covenant. They're basically just newly embracing the terms of the covenant, and until they become the elect of God and are fully tested therein, then they are going to need proxy saviors as people anciently, peoples of Davidic kings, needed the king to be their savior, to be their proxy savior for their temporal salvation, for their physical protection, as Jacob says, on whom you depend for safety. So moving on, we see that Nephi himself interceded for his people on a daily and nightly basis in 2 Nephi 33, verses 3 and 4, which is the role of a proxy savior, which is the role of a king for his, on behalf of his people. Nephi here is an example of loyalty through suffering and adversity. He's willing to suffer anything on behalf of his people that they might be well. He says, I pray continually for them by day, and mine eyes water my pillow by night because of them. And I cry unto my God in faith, not just calling him with rude prayers, but in faith believing what he prays for, right? And I know that he will hear my cry. How does he know that? Well, because he knows the terms of the Davidic covenant, that if he pays the price for his people's deliverance, if he answers for the disloyalties of his people to the emperor as a vassal does to his emperor, then the emperor is bound under the terms of the covenant to deliver him and his people. He knows that that is the case. That is the knowledge that a proxy savior has when he undertakes the terms of the Davidic covenant to answer for the disloyalties of his people. I know that the Lord God will consecrate my prayers for the gain of my people. He says, so there you have it, a king and a protector. 
very solicitous for his people's welfare. His whole life is poured out on their behalf, so to speak. And we see the same thing in the book of Isaiah with King Hezekiah, who intercedes for his people in chapter 37 of Isaiah, verses 18 through 20. Of course, King Hezekiah was a descendant of King David in Isaiah's day. He's a type for our time because his appeal to God to deliver his people from the invading Assyrians was an event that happened in Isaiah's day. It's in the middle of the book of Isaiah. It's a type for our day because God's people in the end time are going to come under the similar kind of siege from a latter-day so-called Assyrian army or an alliance of nations from the north. And they're going to need a Davidic king and other Davidic kings or other saviors on Mount Zion. God's people are going to need these saviors or these intercessors on behalf of their peoples to bring them out of the destruction and safety to Zion. So King Hezekiah says, praying to God when the Assyrians, 185,000 besieged Jerusalem, all around the whole small city. O Jehovah, the kings of Assyria have indeed destroyed all peoples and their lands. So this is a worldwide destruction in that day, the ancient world, and it will be a worldwide destruction again in our day because the book of Isaiah as this type is prophesying it. And the, the kings of Assyria in the book of Isaiah now are, are kings, let's say, of Russia or of China or of somebody else. These are Assyria, the name Assyria becomes a code name for some end time scenario, a militaristic power from the north that arises in the end time to do what the ancient Assyrians did to God's people and to the world in their day. It says, committing their gods to the fire. Well, we have. We have our gods too this day, right? We have the idols of Babylon nowadays. For they were no gods, but mere works of men's hands, of wood and of stone, so they could destroy them. But now, O Jehovah, our God, our God, right? Deliver us out of his hands that all kingdoms on the earth may know that you alone are Jehovah. And so what does Jehovah do? Well, we'll read that in a moment. But here's another scripture from Isaiah 38. Verses 1 through 6. And this is the price that Jehovah exacted from the king as a sacrifice to pay the price for his people's deliverance, so to speak. It is in those days Hezekiah, the days of the siege of Assyria. Hezekiah became gravely ill, and the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos came to him and said, Thus says Jehovah, put your house in order, you will die, you will not recover. At this Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall. Now how symbolic is that? and pray to Jehovah. Well, that's all he knew, that he was going to die, but you think he was willing to offer his life? You think he said, why me, Lord, da-da-da? No. He willingly offered his life when the Lord requires it. And so this is what he said to the Lord. I beseech you to remember, O Jehovah, how I have walked before you faithfully and with full purpose of heart and have done what is good in your eyes. Now, doing good is a synonym of covenant-keeping and covenant blessing in the scriptures, in the Hebrew prophets. So he's basically telling the Lord, look, Lord, I've kept your commandments according to the terms of the Davidic covenant. And then he's telling the Lord, he's not saying, now, Lord, you do your part. He just starts weeping. He says, and Hezekiah wept disconsolately. All he knew was he was going to die, but he was willing to do it for his people. Then the word of Jehovah came to Isaiah, go and tell Hezekiah, Thus says Jehovah, the God of your father David. Why the God of your father David? Because 
Well, he's functioning under the terms of the Davidic covenant, right? The covenant of the Lord with David, his father, his ancestor. I've heard your prayers and seen your tears. In other words, I've accepted your sacrifice. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. I will protect this city. So instead of dying in the prime of his life, the emperor comes to the rescue and delivers his vassal and his people. I will protect this city. So when Jacob says of Nephi that he's a king and a protector, you know it's not necessarily the proxy savior himself who does the actual protecting or delivering. It's really the Lord. But what he can do is qualify the Lord's people for deliverance. He can qualify his people for deliverance by answering for their transgressions and also calling upon them to repent, of course. But, of course, repentance doesn't always happen immediately. So, of course, he has to answer for their transgressions if he's going to be a proxy savior under the terms of the Davidic covenant, which is a much higher law than, of course, the regular law under the law of Moses. Now we're going to read from Isaiah 37 how this concludes, verses 35 through 36, protection under the Davidic covenant. There the Lord says again, I will protect this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And there you have it. For my own sake means the Lord is going to do his part, and for the sake of my servant David, because Hezekiah, a descendant of David, under the terms of the covenant, the Davidic covenant, is doing his part. I will protect this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then the angel of Jehovah went out and slew 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. They're all dead in one night. How about that? That's called divine intervention. And that requires intervention or offering or sacrifice on a much higher level than just simply day-to-day sacrifices. And we saw that in Hezekiah's case. Of course, Hezekiah also appealed to Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was on a higher spiritual level than Hezekiah. And so Isaiah, too, was doing his part, no doubt, in praying for and interceding for the deliverance of Hezekiah's people. All right, now we come to the Book of Mormon. We find that kings are an optimal form of government from Mosiah chapter 29, verse 13. Where Mosiah is speaking to the Nephites, after his sons, sons of Mosiah, would not become kings. Instead, they went on a 14-year mission to the Lamanites, as you know. So they declined being kings. A new form of government would likely have to be instituted, and that's what King Mosiah went about doing. He established the laws of his people. From then on, Mosiah's law became the standard law of the Nephites. But this is what he says to the people. If it were possible that you could have just men to be your kings who would establish the laws of God and judge this people according to his commandments, yea, if you could have men for your kings who would do even as my father Benjamin did for his people, I say unto you, if this could always be the case, then it would be expedient for you that you should always have kings to rule over you. You should always have kings to rule over you. Why would you do that? If you knew that there was a possibility that kings would not always keep the commandments of God, and they would not always be righteous. And what was the great example that had just recently happened in that day? King Noah. King Zenoph, his father, was a righteous king, and the Nephites were always protected from the Lamanites in the land of Nephi. But when King Noah started his riotous living with harlots and so forth, 
the Nephites in that area totally lost their protection. Because King Noah was not answering for his people's disloyalties. He himself was being disloyal. But in the millennial age, who do we have as king who's coming to reign over us? The Lord himself, right? So would that be expedient that we'd always have kings to rule over us? Have him ruling over us? Absolutely. And of course, in the millennial age, not only does the Lord himself rule as king, but also many of the righteous saints will be ruling as kings with him throughout the millennial age, as the Book of Mormon and also the Book of Revelation teach us. Now we go to Alma 19, verses 22 through 23, where we see how Ammon could not be killed, and we'll ask the question, why? Remember that the sons of Messiah would not go to the Lamanites until they had King Messiah's permission, right? They pestered them a lot. Finally, he, the Lord said, let them go, and now's a good time, Lord's own due time, so to speak. And we know also that King Mosiah kept God's law, and his sons kept his law. So there we have the perfect formula for divine protection. And we know that they went among the Lamanites. Ammon had great success in disarming the enemy, as we know. But we also know that Aaron, his brother, and the others were suffering in prison and so forth. So if there was a price to be paid for the deliverance or for the salvation even of the Lamanites, who was paying the price? You can think about that as you read this account. So Ammon had killed one of them by the sword, who raised his sword against him. The others he had disarmed. One of them, whose brother had been slain with the sword of Ammon, being exceedingly angry with Ammon, drew his sword and went forth that he might let it fall upon Ammon to slay him. And this is when Ammon and King Lamoni were lying as if dead in an altered state. Their spirits may have left their bodies. But uh, So Ammon was helpless from a physical standpoint, so to speak. And as he lifted up his sword to smite him, behold, he fell dead. And then it says, now we see that Ammon could not be slain. He could not be slain. For the Lord has said to Mosiah's father, I will spare him and shall be unto him according to thy faith. Therefore Mosiah trusted him unto the Lord. Well, Mosiah, of course, was his proxy savior, Ammon's proxy savior, and that of his other sons. And he kept God's law, and his sons kept his law, so there was the formula for divine protection. And this is what everyone undertakes the terms of the Davidic covenant upon himself and is willing to pay that price of horrible suffering, even as these other sons of Mosiah were in prison, for the deliverance of his people and those Lamanites who were converted by the thousands, of course, were that fruits of their labors. Then we go to Helaman's father-son's relationship. Because the emperor was called the father, and the vassal was called the son. Of course, there's a whole hierarchy of fathers and sons. The Most High God is father to Jehovah. Jehovah is son to, his, to the Most High God, the father. But Jehovah is father to King David and his heirs. And King David is son to Jehovah, but King David is also father to his people, and so it goes down the line. Father-son relationships. And this is what Helaman and his stripling warriors had, as we read here in Alma 56, verses 45 through 48. It says, Never had I seen so great courage, nay, not amongst all the Nephites, for as I had ever called them my sons, 
if we just go by the surface reading here, then yes, we just say, he says, for they were all of them very young. Well, of course, but young can mean several things, right? They were young men, but also it can mean that they had not been tried yet, had not yet been tested in life, they had not yet fought. They were willing, but in actuality, they had not proven themselves yet. And so they said to him, Father, so knowing that he is their proxy savior. They knew that. Helaman was a high priest after the holy word of God. And they were willing to, to let him be their king and their protector and their guarantee for safety. And that was what Helaman was doing for them. He was functioning under the terms of the Davidic covenant as a king to his vassals. And he was functioning as a vassal to Jehovah, his emperor, so to speak. They say, even so they said unto me, Father, behold, our God is with us, and he will not suffer that we should fall. They knew that too. How do they know? Then let us go forth. We would not slay our brethren if they would let us alone. Therefore let us go, lest they should overpower the army of Antipas. Now they never had fought, yet they did not fear death, and they did think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their lives. Yea, and they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. And they rehearsed unto me the words of their mothers, saying, We do not doubt our mothers knew it. Knew what? Well, not long before that, the sons of Messiah had been among the Lamanites, right? And they had seen how the sons of Messiah could not be killed, how Ammon could not be killed. They had been taught the gospel, and no doubt the terms of the Davidic covenant, that were had among the Nephites. And also they knew that, that their own political system of emperor kings and vassal kings, uh, King Laman and his vassal kings throughout his empire, they were supposed to work that way. They knew the terms of these covenants and had taught them to their sons. And that is what their mothers knew. And that is what their sons, why they had no doubt and could trust in Helaman to function as a proxy savior for them. And of course, the Lord delivered on his promise. Alma 57, verse 21, Stripling warriors keep Helaman's law. It says, They did obey and observe to perform every word of command with exactness. So they kept Helaman's law, and Helaman kept God's law, as a high priest according to the holy order of God. Yea, and even according to their faith, it was done unto them, and I did remember the words which they said unto me that their mothers had taught them. You know, it doesn't tell you everything in the Book of Mormon, but you have to read between the lines, and if you knew the covenants God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's people at Sinai, and also with King David and his heirs, then you know what's going on here behind the scenes. Then we go to Alma 57, verses 25 to 26, which kind of sum up this thing. Stripling warriors survived their battles. When the battle's over, there were actually two battles, two great battles that they fought. To our great astonishment and also the joy of our whole army, there was not one soul of them who did perish. Yea, neither was there one soul of them who had not received many wounds. Of course, they also were willing to pay the price of suffering, and they paid it. And now their preservation was astonishing to our whole army. Yea, that they should be spared while there was a thousand of our brethren who were slain 
and we do justly ascribe it to the miraculous power of God because of their exceeding faith in that which they had been taught to believe. I don't doubt that Helaman himself had paid a price of suffering in order to qualify as a proxy savior, and that his life leading up to this point had qualified him to be that kind of savior, that kind of um, protector functioning as a king to them and the role of father to his sons. And of course, we're beginning to see now what it's going to take for Latter-day Saints who are going to go on missions to the Jews and to the Ten Tribes and to the Lamanites at some point in the near future and to deliver those people from destruction, to reinstitute them into the covenant of the Lord with his people and to bring them safely through an exodus and wilderness wandering to the old and new Jerusalem. We're going to see how this is going to repeat itself in our day. And here we have these beautiful scriptural types that show us how it's done. And then we finally, we're going to look at King, what King Mosiah says when they are going to go from kings to judges. And it's really interesting because it shows the background of what King Mosiah was enduring as a king and a protector of his people. Mosiah 29, verses 32 through 34. Now here the Nephites are going from a Davidic covenant where the king is a protector to a Sinai covenant, to a collective covenant with God. He says, King Mosiah says to the people, I desire that this inequality should no more be in the land, in this land, especially among this my people, but I desire that this land shall be a land of liberty and every man may enjoy his rights and privileges alike, so long as the Lord sees fit that we may live and inherit the land. Even as long as any of our posterity remains upon the face of the land, and many more things that King Mosiah write unto them, unfolding unto them all the trials and troubles of a righteous king, yea, all the travails of soul for their people. Right? As we read that Nephi was in travail a lot, pleading for the welfare of his people. So it was with King Mosiah, and it is indeed with any righteous king, King David as well, King Hezekiah as well. And all the murmurings of the people to their king, and he explained it all unto them, he told them that these things ought not to be, but that the burden should come upon the people that every man might bear his part. Because who was bearing the most part? The king, King Mosiah. And this weighed him down. And this weighed every Davidic king down. And this will weigh down the Davidic kings of the end time, the 144,000 servants of the Lord, who are part of the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. And they offer up their sufferings and prepare them for these roles as a free will offering to the Lord. And the Lord accepts them. And then they can qualify to be these saviors on Mount Zion that the scriptures talk about. And that the Lord is inviting us Latter-day Saints to be, right? And this, brothers and sisters, in essence, is the fullness of the gospel in the Book of Mormon. And this is where the fullness of the gospel appears in the Book of Mormon. It's not only in the basic principles of the gospel, the be good gospel, the basic commandments and so forth. No, it's in these extraordinary examples of deliverance and the price of suffering that these heroes of the Book of Mormon paid and that the heroes of the Old Testament paid in delivering their people. Then it goes on to say in Mosiah 29, verse 38, the Nephites answer for their own sins. It says, They relinquished their desires for a king and became exceedingly anxious that every man should have an equal chance throughout all the land. Yea, and every man expressed a willingness to answer for his own sins. And there you have it. 
Every man expressed a willingness to answer for his own sins, because who had been answering for them before? The king. He was answerable to the emperor for disloyalties of his people to the emperor. Jesus has beautiful scriptures and so consistent with the Old Testament. This keeps reinforcing in my mind how true the Book of Mormon is and how it is indeed the most correct book as we discussed in a previous podcast. So in summarizing, the terms of the Davidic covenant operate for saviors of men both past and future. According to Isaiah's prophecy, he prophesies the kings and queens of the Gentiles. The time frame, the Book of Mormon history, exemplifies what would occur again in the end time. And moving forward, how should we apply the terms of the Davidic covenant in our lives today? In other words, are we measuring up? Are we beginning to qualify that we might be uh, such saviors of men that the scriptures are talking about? And the next time, how would a wilderness journey impact our relationship to God? And this is where we discuss the scriptures and Isaiah's and Book of Mormon's wilderness journeys and how they impact the people who go in such a journey. The recommended reading for this time around is End Time Prophecy, a Judeo-Mormon analysis. Thank you for listening today. and I hope to catch you next time. Please share. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn effects of the wilderness journey. How do Book of Mormon wilderness journeys of God's people to promised lands help understand Isaiah's prophecies of an end time wilderness journey?